So today I thought I'd talk about delusion. I'll just overview a little bit of what we've already talked about to remind you of the context of delusion as a whole. I think most of you are familiar with the what are usually called the three roots of unwholesomeness, greed, aversion, delusion. And greed and aversion are pretty, are are kind of more obvious, I think. You know, we, we, um, we're getting really familiar with those here. (laughs) Um, And this is actually good news. (laughs) I hope you're realizing that. Getting familiar, having the having it come into consciousness, as opposed to being below consciousness, and delusion is the uh, the third of these. And you know, a lot of times people do ask, "Well, how can I see delusion? How can I understand delusion? How can I know delusion?" Um, and so, part of what I'd like to do in this talk is to offer some information that might help you to see delusion at work in your own minds. Seeing, as we start to see delusion at work, it becomes less deluded. So as I said the other day, um, I, I think of this, you know, there are kind of three flavors of delusion, um, maybe different depths of delusion, we could call it. And the first one, which we've talked quite a bit about, is that kind of delusion where we're just not connecting with experience, where mindfulness is not present. We are not aware. It's that driving down the road lost in thought, and waking up when we get there and realizing, wow, how did I I get here? Or, you know, sometimes, as we talked about yesterday afternoon, sometimes realizing that there was some memories being recorded, but we weren't present at the time, we weren't aware at the time. Or even sometimes when memories don't seem to be recorded, we just don't have any memory of what happened. Both of those are, it's a form of delusion when we are not aware. We're lost in thought, living in a, an unreal world. Shakespeare has some great quotes and uh, in one in one play, The Tempest, there are a couple of uh, really great delusion quotes. And here's one of them related to this form of delusion. Uh, and in this part of the play, they've landed on the island. This is, uh, you know, this is one of those landing on an island and strange things happen. And um, and so they've landed on this island and there, uh, one, there's, there's been... There's some magic going on on this island, and one of the members of their party has been enchanted, and he's seeing he's seeing things. He's he's fighting demons, so he's he's wandering around with his sword, slashing the air, and you know, so he's he's fighting things that are 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 not there. And uh, 
One character comments about this character saying, This is a strange repose. To be asleep, with eyes wide open, standing, speaking, moving, and yet so fast asleep. We actually live a lot of our lives like this. So we've talked about getting familiar with this, how we we can get familiar with this form of delusion, particularly in the moment when we wake up. We we come back into awareness. There's that lingering flavor of the mind that was not aware. Simple mindfulness counteracts this form of delusion. Simple presence of mind counteracts this very simple form of delusion. At a more complex level, um, I, I classify this second level of delusion as being maybe what we could call personal delusion or societal delusion. Delusion based on our own conditioning, the conditioning of our culture, um, Views, opinions, agendas, ideas about who we are, about what we can do, about what others can do, about what's right in a culture, all those kinds of things. When we're, when we're immersed in this kind of delusion, we're experiencing things. It's not that we're checked out. We're knowing things, we're experiencing things, but we're experiencing things through a certain perspective. We're seeing things through that view. And because we're seeing things through that view, we may not be perceiving reality completely accurately. And in fact, it's sometimes... um, when we're perceiving something from a particular perspective, uh, having a belief or a view about something, um, it can be very hard to see information that contradicts that view. Because we're holding that view so tightly that we just can't take in information to the contrary. I've been reading Proust lately. And he has some, also some great delusion quotes. Here's one about this particular kind of delusion. Facts do not find their way into the world in which our beliefs reside. They did not produce our beliefs. They do not destroy them. So we could say facts, reality, (laughs) Reality does not find the way into the world in which our beliefs reside. Reality did not produce our beliefs, and reality does not destroy them. They may, reality may inflict on our beliefs the most constant refutations without weakening them. This is, this is, our, this is the way our lives are, our minds are. So many... Uh, so much of what goes on in the world, so much of the conflict that goes on in the world has this as a source. And in fact, the Buddha talking about views says this is 
the great source of quarrels and dissent. So there's lots of different examples of this kind of delusion. So I'll just, I'm just going to give you a few that I've explored, looked at, uh, thought about. Um, The first is, you know, just the simple one about who we are, what we're capable of, having views about ourselves. We may have a sense of, um, you know, I can do these things, but I can't do those things. We may have that, those views about others. I gave the example the other day about the person who's always 15 minutes late. You know, we have a view of that person. And um, through that view, we believe they're not capable of arriving on time. And do we notice when they arrive on time? Or maybe we do notice when they arrive on time, but it doesn't puncture the belief that they're always late because... We think, well, they're more, they're late, they're, they're more late than not. And so this is like, this is the aberration. This is not who they are. And this is the kind of way our mind works with these beliefs. So we box ourselves in, we box others in. Proust also talks about this. Our social personality is the creation of the mind of others, and I would add, of ourselves. Even the simple act that we call seeing a person we know is in part an intellectual one. We fill the physical appearance of the person we see with all the notions we have about him. And the total picture about others that we form for ourselves and of the total picture about others that we form for ourselves, these notions certainly form the greater part the notions that we have about people are largely the way we see them rather than meeting them as they actually are. So we live. We live through this world of our notions and ideas. So this is one area, uh, how we relate to other people, that this kind of uh, views slip in. Another uh, way this kind of um, view or Know, where where basically we have something that we're doing or thinking or um, and it it screens certain things in and not other and uh, and filters other things out is even just the simple act of having an agenda of I need to do this task when we have a particular task to do our attention goes to that task. And we pick up the information we need. This is really useful, by the way. Pick up the information we need to do that task. And we ignore, actually, sometimes do not even see information that's not related to that task. Psychologists have studied this. They call this phenomenon selective attention. They... Um, you know, in some studies, I won't describe the study in, in detail, but they ask people to watch something with a task in mind. Watch a video with a task in mind. And they can accomplish the task that they have set out in that, by watching that video and, and doing that task. They can accomplish that task. 
And yet in that video was inserted some very odd phenomenon. Something unexpected, something you wouldn't expect to happen in that situation. And people did not see that odd phenomenon in the video. Now this is, this is a very kind of normal thing. Our, our mind picks out of the environment the things that it uh, needs to accomplish a task. That in itself is not particularly a problem. But in this study, the thing that really struck me uh, about this study is that when people were showed the video back to see that, well, actually that thing was there, you know, it's like people did not see it. And when they were told, oh, by the way, did you notice there was a gorilla there in the video? Uh, They said no. And when they showed the video back and the gorilla was completely obvious, you know, hard to miss the gorilla. People would say, that cannot be the same video. That is delusion at work. That we, in a way, we kind of believe that our sensory apparatus are accurately recording reality. And, uh, accurately remembering reality. The way our senses and perceptions work is very selective. And we may well... Now, I don't know if Sayadaw Tejaniya would remember the gorilla if he hadn't remembered it before. (laughs) You know, he claims to remember things he didn't see, you know. Maybe it is recorded in there and just somehow it's not... It's not known. But in any case, that belief that it has to be a different video, you know, this is delusion at work. So uh, this actually points to, um, you know, many of the forms of delusion that I'm going to, I'm talking about here. um, uh, I'm going to go through a couple more in this kind of uh, vein are actually related to very natural and useful strategies of our mind. You know, this selective attention is a very useful strategy of the mind to accomplish something. So uncovering delusion isn't necessarily about stopping these strategies, but about recognizing them as strategies, as processes of the mind, and recognizing that these strategies that function very, you know, automatically almost, can obscure and uh, filter what we know, can allow us to experience some things and not other things. So knowing this information, even just knowing this information is helpful. Another uh, kind of form of this delusion or a way this delusion is created is um, when we perceive something, we, we experience or um, come into contact with some aspect of reality. An elephant, for example. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are f- familiar with the story of the blind person and the elephant, blind people and the elephant. 
blind people being shown touched particular parts of the elephant not given the entire picture of the elephant by touch but just a piece of it so some um, shown the legs, some the tail, some the ear, some the body of the elephant. And then each was asked to describe what is an elephant like? And having each touched various parts of the elephant, they came up with different descriptions. An elephant is like a broom. An elephant is like a hose. An elephant is like a wall of a storeroom. Or an elephant is like a post. Now, again, this isn't a problem, that this is perception at work. This is the recognition process at work. We talked a little bit about this this process of recognizing experience. Um, we we uh, hear something or see something or feel something, and the mind very naturally goes back and kind of says, what have I felt similar to that? you know, kind of in an associative way. A very natural process of remembering and um, categorizing, essentially. And again, this is a really useful process. The Where was I reading? I, I was reading a book about this kind of processing in the mind. And it, it the, this particular book pointed out that um, when we have to figure something out for the first time, you know, first time we encounter something, the amount of energy it takes is quite high. And then, um, you know, as we as we go on and we meet things that are similar, it's like the 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 brain kind of takes a shortcut to recognize things. So this is the process of perception, this this shortcutting in a way, and it saves a lot of energy apparently, in this body mind it saves a lot of energy. So it's a very natural and normal process, and it's not like a problem that we are perceiving things. But the story goes on. Each, each person was describing, you know, what, what is an elephant? And each one described it in their own way. And the, um, the story goes that they came to blows, arguing over what an elephant was like. An elephant is not like that. I felt it with my own experience. An elephant is like this. An elephant is not like that. An elephant is like this. Now, they experienced their part of it accurately, but did not get the whole picture. This, I think, is another way delusion happens, is that we get a kind of a taste of some part of experience or some part of reality, and then create a view based on that piece and extrapolate to say that's that's the whole thing, just like these uh, the the story of the blind people and the elephant. So that's like a view created from incomplete information. And then there are um, cultural views views of, of the society, views of, um, you know, that we, we take in so much through the media, through uh, having opinions passed down from generation to generation, 
that we don't even question them. We don't even, uh, perhaps even recognize that they're views that we're holding because they're so embedded in the way that we experience reality that we don't see it as a view. So, for example, there's a kind of a pervasive view in our culture. America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can achieve their goal, their dream. And, well, perhaps that is a possibility for people of privilege, for people perhaps with a particular skin color, where doors are not blocked for them, but for a whole group of people with the simple difference of a color of skin, various kind of structures are in place in the society that make that belief not possible, really, in so many ways. It, It makes it way more difficult and so this kind of uh, cultural view can lead to the what we might call white privilege. We call white privilege this uh, notion um, that, you know, the way it is for me is the way it is for everyone. And that is not, it's not the reality uh, of many people in this culture. And yet, we hold that view, we hold that perspective, and somehow perhaps blame people or say, well, you're not working hard enough. It's obvious. America is the land of opportunity. You can achieve your dream if you work hard enough. You must not be working hard enough. That's a form of delusion and oppression. It's a delusion that impacts others. So many forms of views cause suffering, not only for ourselves, but for others. I want to go back to the idea of concept again. Um, I was just talking about how we create a view based on partial information. And, you know, we start by that concept know, we experience something, the leg of an elephant, oh, a leg of an elephant's like a post. So that's the perceptual process. You know, that's just this process of um, the mind recognizing something and using concept, this, the concept being kind of the shortcut I mentioned before, the shortcut of um, uh, recognition of experience. Another form of delusion And this is a pretty uh, subtle form of delusion. This one kind of interweaves in a way with the deepest forms of delusion that we have around um, um, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, taking what is not self to be self. You know, that's... Those are those are not delusions that are based on personal or social conditioning or or um, you know family of origin or anything, but those are just based on being human. And this 
this one that I'm going to talk about here, it's kind of, it's kind of in the middle in a way. It's, it's, uh, it's this process of concepting, of perceiving, and then relating to experience through concept. This is very natural thing to do. We, in a sense, sense um, we don't see concept as concept. We see, we, we uh, take concept to be what is real. We take concept to be reality. I'll give an example of this because this is, this is maybe hard to just, you know, in the abstract understand. So um, I was at Shui Umin the meditation center and my room was pretty near the monastery wall and there was a lot of sound that came over the wall you know to from from the little huts and things the village nearby and um and so in my room I was hearing a very variety of sounds and um Roughly, you know, in, in the late afternoon, early evening, every day I would hear a squealing noise. And um, my mind recognized that squealing noise, the perceptual process at work. It's like squealing noise. The, this squealing noise, I had experienced a squealing noise like this. And the mind recognized that as pig the squealing of a pig. So that was the concept. Now I did see that that was a concept. You know, I saw that that was a concept that was created. Um, And the squealing sound had a kind of a distressed tone to it. So I imagined, and again, I knew this was imagination, but here it was arising in my mind, you know, that uh, these pigs were being slaughtered. That that was the squealing I was hearing, was that pigs were being slaughtered. And the experience was compassion. And that was the result of that experience. So there was the perception of this, there was the sound, there was the perception of it as pig. There was the idea that it was pig being slaughtered. And based on that idea, compassion arose. Much of this in the mind. All of it in the mind. <laughs> so, And I saw that a lot of it was in the mind. And yet one night I was walking out in the monastery. Instead of in my room meditating, I was doing my walking meditation at about that time. And uh, I was seeing, um, you know, these like, swooshing things like they were coming really close and swooshing by me and it's like oh there are these bats that are out here at this time of night and they were squealing and I recognized that sound that I've been hearing was not a pig it was a bat the whole I mean I had seen that this was an idea but I had not even considered the possibility that it was not a pig I mean, I'd considered the possibility that maybe it wasn't a pig being slaughtered, but I had not considered the possibility it was not a pig. It was like, whoa, you know, that whole story just vanished. And so sometimes it can be easier to explore and see this question of concept and the how we see experience through concept when 
perception makes a mistake. So this was a case when perception made a mistake. And it became very clear that so much of my, the reality that had been constructed was based on the concept. First the concept pig, and then the concept dying pig. So we do this all the time. This process of, of concept making um, and then living through or relating to, it through, to experience through concept is pretty much how we live our lives. Now again, it's not something we can necessarily say, oh, stop concept making. You know, if I had to walk in this room and figure out every single time all the different components, parts of this room, it would be exhausting. I I walk in here and instantly the mind knows, recognizes people and walls and windows and floor and zabutans and lights. Instantly, it takes no effort at all. And it's very hard, very hard to recognize that we are seeing these things as concepts rather than reality. And so at this point, looking out, I do not, at a visceral, at a, at, a, at a knowing level, I do not know that I'm seeing through concept. I know that at an intellectual level. And yet even that is helpful. Even that recognition of, yes, I'm seeing people through concept. It helps to uh, undercut the kind of solidification that we make around our concepts. And this heads into another topic that I think is quite, quite central to delusion. A process in the mind, this process in the mind that um, basically takes concepts and believes uh, uh, believes the reality of concepts. So we, you know, we rather than recognizing we're seeing through concept, there seems to be a process in the mind that um, creates the concept and then believes its reality. So I think this process is what the Buddha calls papancha. There's um. Not an actual definition of papancha in the texts, but it does describe how it's created. I'll read this piece to you. And I'll read it with the usual translation for papancha, but then I'm going to explore that word just a little bit. So, dependent on the eye and forms, or the ear and sounds, or the body and sense contact, or etc., Dependent on any sense contact, eye consciousness arises, sense consciousness arises. So dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as a condition, there is feeling. So sense impingement leads to experience of feeling that sense impingement. What one feels, that one perceives. So we feel something and a perception arises with it. Just this process we've been describing. There's the experience of sight and 
um, the mind recognizes it as person. That's perception. What one perceives, that one thinks about. This is this person. I remember that person. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. Mental proliferation here is what the word translated um, from papancha. So what one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. And often this word of mental proliferation is defined essentially something like the mind running amok. Just like, oh, I know that person. Oh, that person. That person's the one that did that to me. And oh, gosh, you know, when they did that to me, that was... That was seven years ago, and wow, seven years ago I was doing that, and you know, kind of like the the mental, like running amok of the mind based on sen- sense contact perception. And this is a this this process that I just described is like this is a way the mind leaves present moment awareness. You know, sense we hear a bird, we start thinking about the bird, and then we remember situations where we were with birds or seeing birds or bird watching and then zoom we're gone so this is one form of of papancha um but i think it's actually a deeper problem than simply that lots of thinking um because elsewhere in the suttas i'll read a, a quote that i just found today And I'll just use the word papancha here. One who is without papancha has no standing place, is without craving. One who has no papancha has no craving. Essentially here equating the absence of this process of papancha with liberation. So my mind's been pretty quiet and without that thoughts running amok, but I don't think I'm liberated. So I don't think that papancha is simply thoughts, a lot of thoughts in the mind. The next part of the text goes on to say about this this papancha. So um, what one perceives, that one thinks about, what one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and ideas tinged by mental proliferation beset one with respect to past, present, and future forms cognizable by the eye. So basically, this process of papancha somehow... Um, at least this text describes that through this process of papancha, there is something created through which we view experience. Thoughts of the past come through that view. Thoughts of the present come through that view. Thoughts of the future come through that view. And it uh, impacts how we perceive experience. So... um, Han Jeff has actually started translating papancha not as proliferation, but as objectification. 
And I really think that's that may be, you know, it's 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 hard to know actually what what it means in the suttas. But when you think about that, what's going on there, um, and and start to see and get familiar with the processes of the mind, we see this process working where there's a there's a concept that's in the mind, and then we see the solidification of the idea of that concept. And then we see that the creation of a view around that concept. And then we see reality through that view. That's what I think Papancha is. Back to that story of the blind people and the elephant. You know, the perception itself isn't particularly a problem. The solidification of the view. An elephant is like this. Believing that view and being willing to fight for that view, that's papancha, I think. Another word, I think we mentioned this the other day, that that to me also, um, I like this word, reification, but it's, uh, uh, I like the word because of the way it's defined. Um, The definition of reification is the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. We take something to be real, take something to have a reality where there is not a reality there. This is a process of objectification, turning a process into a thing we do this all the time. We even do this with each other. We see people through our idea of them. We even see things like chairs through our idea of them. So this kind of ignorance, this kind of uh, process, I think this is a very deep process in the mind. This process of view creation and then believing the view. The Buddha talked a lot about views, the danger of views, and in particularly the danger of um, believing a view to be the only description of reality. Over and over again, he pointed out when people said, this is my, uh, this is the way reality is, only this is true, nothing else, everything else is false that this was delusion, this kind of uh, creation of a view and then a attribution of truth to that view. So this is a fairly deep um, form of delusion in our psyches. So again, you know, not something we can necessarily um, you know, stop, like, can I turn off view creation? Can I turn off believing? Probably not, but maybe we can start to recognize, oh, believing is happening. Here's a thought. I can do this. I can't do that. You know, I can't do that. That's not, that's not me. And recognizing it as a belief rather than seeing the world through that belief as truth. We can start to uncover and recognize beliefs, even just simply by asking, what's being believed here? 
uncover the beliefs that are at work in our minds, begin to unveil them so that we're not necessarily, no, they're really deluding us when we aren't seeing that we're seeing through these beliefs. At least if they come into consciousness, we have a chance of recognizing, oh, this is a belief that's operating. Even if we still believe it, we have a chance to at least recognize that it's a process at work in our minds. So the, um, the more fundamental kinds of delusions, the human delusions I talked about, the taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, taking what is not self to be self. This is, kind of, this is probably the most insidious form of delusion. And these really are, they're basically views. They're very fundamental human views that are not seen as views, not seen as beliefs. The view of self, the view that we're taking things to be permanent, the view that we are taking something to be reliable. So this kind of delusion functions at such a low level in our minds, such a fundamental level in our minds, that it's very possible to be completely mindful and have no idea that we are seeing through that view. And Sayadaw Utejaniya says, delusion does not mask the object. And this kind of fundamental delusion does not mask the object. It masks the true nature of the object. So we s- there's an experience. We could change that word object to experience. So I was just talking about objectification, so the, the languaging can get confused here. So delusion does not mask experience. It masks the true nature of experience. Another quote from The Tempest. In the situation, this is the time they've just landed on the island. This, this shipwreck, there's shipwreck, and they kind of found their way to shore, and they're wandering around, looking at things, exclaiming over things, and, and one guy's wandering around, and he's describing, he's describing what's going on. It's like, you know... Um, seeing seeing uh, things and describing them and um you know he's describing what's there but in uh like he's seeing a field of green rocks or something and he sees this green expanse and he says oh what a verdant valley and uh, the comment here is one one uh, person to the other one person says he misses not much He's so he's seeing all these different things and describing all these different things. He's, he misses not much. No, he doth but mistake the truth totally. This again is much of how we live our lives. Seeing what's impermanent as permanent. And kind of the most fundamental thing we take as permanent is our very life, you know? At a very deep level, unless we are come up right against our mortality through an illness or somebody dying near to us, much of the time, and I think too as we age we get closer to this, we, we get closer to this truth that we are mortal as we age. I'm seeing little, little inklings of it myself now at the age of 55 
When I was 35, I mean, I could tell myself I was, yeah, I, yeah I'm going to die someday. But, you know, the reality of that did not enter my mind. It's actually a quote from the Mahabharata. What is the greatest wonder that every person every day sees death and yet not once does it occur to him or her that I too will die. The sense of it never enters into the mind. So we, we have this illusion of ourselves. You know, it's our own lives. We feel this around mind states. You know, the, the sense of, I, I've, heard, I've heard you describe, some of you describe this in, in, your, uh, in your reports, you know, the, the sense of, oh, some difficult mind state arises and it's like, oh, the rest of the retreat's going to be like this. You know, it's like the belief, you know, it, it, the imputation of a, of a solidity, of a permanence to that mind state. And then, lo and behold, you know, three hours later, it's like, wow, it's gone. Oh my gosh. As we observe our experience here, we do start to have little holes poked into this belief. But still, we believe it. You know, it's amazing. Over and over again, a mind state arises like, oh, the rest of the retreat's going to be like this. So notice the impermanent nature of experience. You know, it does begin to poke holes in this, this delusion, taking what is impermanent as permanent. At a, at a kind of a deeper level, um, you know, just the way our perceptual processes work masks impermanence. Um, things are changing so rapidly that it doesn't, uh, you know, like, like, so I hear that this podium is mostly space and rapidly moving particles. In fact, they're so rapidly moving that the rapidly moving particles in this hand and the rapidly moving particles in the podium get in each other's way. And so... It feels solid. So the rapidity of movement, the rapidity of change masks or hides this impermanent nature of experience. And also in our, in our um, uh, perception, you know, the oh, pain is a one that you can start to see this with. You know, the, uh, pain is a, a, an exploration in meditation where we can really start to see how we create an idea of pain and when we have the idea of pain, it feels like maybe a big block. You know, it's a thing, it's solid. But then we start investigating pain or exploring it. And it's like, well, it's not a block. It's actually like a spark here, a burn here, a twist there, a jab there. And it's like this very dynamic experience. It's not a solid experience. A rapidly changing experience. So 
in terms of this kind of um, delusion, if something seems solid, seems permanent, seems stable, investigate it. Is it really solid? Keep looking. Keep looking. What are you taking to be permanent? Things like mind states, when you recognize that attribution of, oh, it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat, or even for the rest of my life, you know, it's going to be like this. When you see it disappear, recognize, remind yourself, it was impermanent. It wasn't true. That imputation of permanence was delusion. So this is a way we can begin to uh, undercut some of the power of delusion. Seeing what's unreliable as reliable, what's unreliable as satisfying. The most kind of pervasive uh, view around this is... um, you know, that having pleasant experience is as good as it gets. You know, that uh, pleasant experience is where happiness comes from. And having pleasant experience, that is um, happiness. Yeah. We, we may kind of know in su- at some level, we do know at some level that sense pleasure changes, but at the same time we um, impute a reliability to the process of getting what we want, the process of having sense pleasure. Like As soon as that one ends, then getting the next one, that's where happiness will come from. And as soon as that one ends, well, getting the next one. And so we impute this reliability of pleasure and happiness to this process of getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. So greed and aversion actually arise out of this form of delusion. This is a a key way that greed and aversion come to be. That um, it's... it's, uh, The delusion, basically, the delusion of greed is that having the thing that I want will bring happiness. That's the delusion of greed. The feeling of greed itself is the pull, the wanting, the, you know, the pull towards that thing. The delusion of greed is the belief that having it will make me happy. Greed is not going to tell you that, oh, by the way, If greed goes away, happiness will follow. Greed isn't going to tell you that because it's enmeshed in that view. Having what I want will make me happy. So the delusion of greed is that very belief. We can can watch this. We can see. And the aversion is the same way. Getting rid of what I want is the way to control, is the way to you know, get rid of what I want, arrange my environment so that no unpleasant things are in it. Whew, that's happiness. Same, uh, same process at work. 
the belief that getting rid of the unpleasant will be happiness. So I think also in there is the belief with greed and with aversion, it's the belief that, yes, having what I want will make me happy. And not only that, it's the only way to happiness. So we can undermine that form of delusion by watching greed. Pick something sometime. You know, the meals are so amazing here. (laughs) And we're all working with greed (laughs) around the meals. (laughs) So someday this retreat decide to just have one plate and not go back for seconds you know just watch the wanting watch the wanting see what happens as you watch the wanting feel the pull i mean you know you're sitting in the dining room probably what would happen in this kind of scenario at least for me you know it's like okay there's that uh more of that great Mediterranean food on the table. And, uh, okay, I'm not going to get it. You know, and, and it's kind of like I almost might feel a magnetic pull <laughs> to the table. It's like, no, I'm just going to watch that pull. So just watch, watch the pull, watch the feeling. That's the greed itself. You know, feel that, feel that experience of the greed. How do, you know, what, what, happen, what happens to it? You know, does it stay constant? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Um, you know, if you're sitting there, if you're just sitting there in the dining room the whole time, you might notice that as the food finishers come out and start clearing away the food, you know, two or three bowls are gone. It's like, oh, can't have that anymore. <laughs> so maybe a little bit of the degrees, you know, let's go. Maybe it's all gone. It's like, oh. And then the mind kind of moves on to something else. So we can watch the process of greed diminish and see, actually, if you can at times, it's, it's not always available to see the complete ending of greed. You can do this around, um, you know, other things too, wanting to look at something or wanting to um, do something, you know, just watch the greed and see what are the conditions that in which the greed ends. And if you watch actually the greed to its very end and feel, experience the actual release of greed, most of the time I think, a lot of the time as we watch greed, what tends to happen is the greed gets weak, the mind gets bored with watching it, and then, you know, it picks up on something else. And so it doesn't really see the greed completely let go. If you see the experience of greed completely letting go, it feels like you've been released from a vice grip. It is such a freeing experience. The happiness of release from greed is so much more satisfying than having what the greed wanted. So this is a this is we can explore this, explore this. Uh, that pops the bubble of the delusion of greed, believing 
having what I want will be happiness, and it's the only way to happiness. It begins to undermine that delusion of greed. Likewise with aversion, same same process, you can watch the same process. Seeing what is not self is self. This is a big topic, of course. I won't try to, in the next four minutes, do a whole teaching on not-self. But I'll just say a couple of things. I mean, we've been exploring this all week, you know, various ways of seeing identification and seeing the sense of self arise. When it feels like, not to go looking for what is the sense of me, you know, necessarily, but when it feels obvious or feels strong, be curious about it. It's an arising experience when the sense of self feels, is, it becomes obvious. You know, this might happen uh, when, um, I think this particularly happens when um, particular views or um, um, hmm, when our sense of self comes up against something that it can't have or can't do, the sense of self becomes stronger. As long as the self is getting what it's want, what it wants, it's much less obvious. So you know, states like self righteousness or um, um, you know self ju- self justification, um, the birth of a, a state of a strong emotion where it's like, you know, this is me. This is I'm. Uh, this is a. What, those patterns, those emotional patterns that we really take to be, this is who I am, that's a good time to explore. What is this sense of self? What is it that feels like me? So exploring that experience of the feeling of self. Another good place to look at this is when it feels like there's a creation of other. You know, you might, you might, judgment does this sometimes, you know, that person's doing that thing and, um, you know, don't they know they shouldn't do that or, you know, I I, I had this, this, uh, this experience, well, I'll finish my thought there. When there's a creation of other, there is a creation of self, there's a separation. So the creation of a sense of other may be what's most obvious. That person's X, that person's Y, they shouldn't do that or that or that. When you're noticing an othering happening, that's another way of exploring the sense of self. Because when there is other, there is self. So exploring that process of creation of other. So on one retreat, I was... um, it was, it was one of my early retreats, and I had had a painful breakup of a relationship, and, you know, was mourning the loss of the relationship, and um, um, there were couples on the relationship, and I was really relieved at the, you know, the beginning of the retreat when the managers announced, you know, or the teachers, someone announced around, you know, when you're here with a partner or something, really helpful to not, like, you know, have interactions with them, not make it obvious that you're, you know, a couple, you know, just... Treat your retreat as if you're separate individuals. You know, don't sit together at meals. Don't make eye contact. You know, it's like, I don't have to worry about like having couples in my face. You know, I'd been wandering around the world and every time I saw two people together, it's like, oh, so this is the mind. This is the mind at work creating suffering for itself. But at the same time, it was like a little bit of a relief, you know, 
to know this. But in any case, you know, um, at this particular retreat, there were quite a few couples, and several of them chose to not listen to what the managers and the teachers said, and there was one particular couple that would have a lingering embrace outside the meditation hall. <laughs> and my mind went into to, to self-justification. It wasn't so much about... It, it wasn't... A, the thoughts weren't about me so much. It's like... These people, don't they know that there are probably people here who are suffering from loss of relationship? And it's like, you know, and then it's like, wait a minute, this is about me. (laughs) Oh, this is about me. (laughs) So so when there's that othering, there's also selfing, exploring that, uh, that dynamic. So just a couple bits, a couple more bits to finish up here. Um, becoming aware of delusion, this information may help you to kind of have hints of where delusion can creep in. But in any case, you can use suffering as a guide. Whenever there is suffering, there is some form of delusion at work. You don't actually have to figure out what the delusion is. Meet the suffering. Explore the contraction, explore the pain, you could drop in a question, what's being believed here? Or what belief is being violated here? To begin to to recognize some of the delusional aspects at work. But the most important piece actually is the exploration of suffering. If that's what's obvious, explore that. It will start to uncover the delusion. It's the data gathering It's the data gathering. We gather the data of what's obvious and over time it begins to reveal the, uh, how the delusion is functioning. Sometimes what we see, we don't really understand at a deep level the functioning of delusion until at some point through a state of the development, the growth of wisdom, a delusion falls away. we see that, you know, that, wow, that isn't permanent. That mind state, I thought I was going to be feeling that for weeks at least, and it's five minutes and it's gone. So the um, falling away of that delusion can help us at another time when we've seen something come and go, for example, and and, and any of these um, any of these kinds of explorations around, you know, noticing what is not self, noticing, noticing what we take to be self, noticing what we take to be reliable, noticing what we take to be permanent, can begin to um, have those delusive filters drop away. And then we see, and it's like, it's like so obvious when those filters drop away sometimes, when we're seeing not through a filter of delusion. It's like, how can I not see this? How can I not know experience in this way? And yet, a day later, a mind state comes back. Oh, it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat. You might recognize, I've heard this one before, and it wasn't true. Okay, maybe... We, that, that belief of it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat is an attitude that's added on that actually creates a heaviness and a weight to the experience. Actually recognizing, I've seen this before. 
It's not true that mind states are permanent. Maybe this one too will be impermanent. Maybe I can just see this. Maybe I can just watch it. So as delusion falls away and comes back, because it will, unfortunately, you know, the, the falling away of delusion is impermanent too. <laughs> it comes back over and over again. We see the same patterns, the same delusions. It's not a mistake. It's the habit of mind. So, but the second, the third, the eighth, the 28th, the 126th time we see something, it gets easier to recognize, oh right, this is delusion at work. So having seen through it, we can then recognize the filter. I'm seeing through a filter now. This is a belief happening. And that helps us to be able to meet the experience rather than fight against it and resist it. So, let's sit for a moment. 